Now, how many times you get frustrated, especially we have a lot of guys in trades, and you have homeowners that it just seems like you can never make them happy. It's like no matter what you do, and you're like, if I could just know what it is you require of me, what, you, what it is you want to have done, you know, I just can't quite figure you out. You know, I'm not sure what you require. And sometimes husband and wives have those issues, and children, you know, it's like, well, I don't know what my dad and mom really expect out of me. I'm trying to do the best I can. And a lot of times I think we feel that way about the Lord, you know. We ask ourselves if I could just know what God wants me to do, what he expects of me. What exactly does he want me to do? Does he want me to fast more? If that's what it is, I'd be more than glad to do it. Does he want me to read my Bible more? I'll do that. I'll read it all day long. Does he want me to witness more? Find me a hundred people. I'll talk to them. You know, just what exactly is it? Do I need to pray more? I don't pray enough. Maybe you need to do all those things. I don't know, but we always want to know. I'll pay any cost. Sometimes don't you get to that place, talk to somebody the other day. What is it God needs from me? I'm willing to do it. And we get there, God, just tell me and I'll do it. And I think we listen tonight. We sing the song, God will give us the answer. It's not that complicated. It really isn't. So if you would, if you'd find the book of Micah. Now, Micah is one of those hidden prophets. So... You got Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. You get to see Jonah put the brakes on. You'll be there. And uh, otherwise, if you see Nahum and Habakkuk, go backwards a couple books. You'll get there. But we're looking at the book of Micah. And actually, we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 6. So Micah, in his day, he lived, just to make it simple, he lived about the time of Isaiah. He was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. And he was another prophet, like a lot of prophets were. They predicted the downfall of Samaria in 722 B.C. He's got three distinct prophecies in his books. And every one of them, it's chapter 1, chapter 3, and chapter 6. And every one of them begins with the word here. That's the beginning of a new prophecy. And every one of those three prophecies follow a pattern. He names sin And he names the soon judgment that is to follow, but he also gives a message of hope and restoration in there. At the end of one prophecy, the middle one, Micah 5, 2, we all know it was the prediction of the Messiah coming. That's the ray of hope. So that's typically what you'll see in the prophets just for your own reading and information. Even with Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, any of them. So you tend to think of a prophet as somebody ranting and raving and his veins sticking out on his neck and it's fire, brimstone type preaching. Well, there's there's that in there and judgment and sometimes it's severe. But almost with all of them, even when we did Amos, Amos doesn't end on a note of severity. They always end on a note of hope and restoration for God's people. That's generally what you get from the prophets because that's God's heart. So let's begin reading in Micah chapter 6 beginning in verse 1, and he writes, Hear ye now what the Lord says. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. Hear ye, O mountains, the Lord's controversy, and ye strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me. For I have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants or slaves. I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him from Shittim unto Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. 
Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the exalted God or the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? In verse 8, which we know well, he says, Well, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. It's a great song. We sing it all the time. But I want to kind of go back and get the context going down into verse 8. And what we have here, beginning in verse 1, it's the equivalent of a court case taking place here. It's God versus the people of Israel. And the mountains are the jury or the witnesses of this court case. That's what we have taking place here. And so when we look at verse 1, he tells his people, he says, Stand up on your feet, arise, and I'm going to contend with you, and you need to plead your case. Plead your case. Put your best case forward before the mountains. That's what it says. Look what it says. Hear ye now what the Lord says. Arise, contend thou before the mountains, and let the hills hear thy voice. So in a sense, the mountains have become the figurative witnesses in this court case. And why is that? Well, you think about a mountain. Because he's going to go back 7,000 years when he talks to them. And where are those mountains? I'm saying rivers change and peoples change. And the nations that are ruling the earth change, but guess what stays the same and witnesses all of it? Mountains. And they're rising up, and he's, in a sense, saying they are looking down. They've witnessed everything you people have done. And so we'll let them be the witnesses here in this court case. And he says, you go ahead and plead your case. Put your best foot forward before the mountains. And they've seen everything you've done for the last hundreds of years. And then he goes on in verse 2. He says, oh, hear you, O mountains, the Lord's controversy. So he's saying, I want them to hear both sides. I want them to hear your side, but they're also going to hear my side. He says, ye strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a controversy with his people, and he will plead with Israel. So he's saying, okay, verse 1, the people, you plead your case. And verse 2, he's saying, I'm going to plead my case. And he says, then we'll let the mountains decide who is right. So God is a good lawyer, and he says, I got a good case, and I am going to plead it. And let me ask you, how would you like to be in a court case, you versus the Lord? I mean, <laughs> well, that would hurt you, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> you know who's going to win that one. And he says, just let the mountains be at the jury. They've seen everything that's going on, and he's saying, let them speak. Because if they speak, they, those mountains, they've seen what's happened. They've been there, seen it all, haven't moved. They will give a just and a fair verdict. And so he goes on in verse 3. And the thing is here, you kind of get the impression when you first start reading through that, you think God is just going to come down on them. I've got a controversy. I've got a case against you. And you think he's just going to get on their case. But look how he talks to them in verse 3. He speaks in a loving way. He says, oh, my people. And he asked them, what wrong have I done to you? I mean, he's just like saying it in a nice way, isn't he? He's not getting on their case at this point. He's saying, oh, my people, what, what is it I have done to you? It's like he, he said in Jeremiah 2, what iniquity have your fathers found in me that they are gone away from me? Because he asked them there, he says, what have I done unto thee? And wherein, he says, have I wearied thee? 
And that word weary means like somebody that just, you're exasperating me. You're just putting a burden on me. Um, he's asking them, how is it I'm boring you? You act like you're tired of me. And that's really what that word means. I'm just a drag on your lifestyle. And that's the way the people felt about the Lord at that point. And in Malachi, Malachi said this to him. He said to the people, they were worn out about bringing sacrifices. He used the same word. He said, you said also, behold, what a weariness it is. And you have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. And you have brought that which is torn and the lame and the sick. And thus you brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hands, saith the Lord? And they were just bored. They're like, all right, they're just snuffing at it. You know, here, I'll just bring whatever. They're not in any way making sure that they're bringing the Lord and doing him honor and bringing the right sacrifice. And if you go on and read the end of Malachi 1, he's not happy about it. He's saying, really, you are insulting me with what you're doing. But the way he's pleading with them here, you get the impression he's saying, how is it I've wearied you? Haven't I been a good God to you? That's what he would ask us. In what way have we been wearied with the Lord? Has he not been a good God to us? Hasn't he always done what's best for us? Look at the end of that. And he says, then testify against me. He said, if I have, then here's your chance. Bring your case. Tell me what it is that I've done that I've done you wrong, Israel, to this point. And guess what you have there? Silence. They don't have an answer because they know in their hearts that God has always done them right. Isn't that the way it is with us? I mean, we do know the Lord has always done us right. And he goes on in verse 4. He just tells them, look, here's all the things I've done for you since I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Verse 4, he said, I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed thee out of the house of thy servants is the first thing he says. And they're saying, man, our life now, we don't like it. They're in the land. And they wanted to be more like the other nations. They're involved in all their sins. They have ignored the way God has set up his sacrifice. They're not showing him any love or concern. And he's saying, that's bored you. I'm boring you with all that. And you need to remember back how your life was back in Egypt. Because life in Egypt for those people was terrible. It says this in Exodus. They ruthlessly, the Egyptians, made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. In fact, if you remember the account, it says what about Israel? The oppression was so bad that they were literally groaning. And it said that groaning and that misery just came up before the Lord. And he's like, I've seen the affliction of my people. And so he did something about it. And that's what he's bringing back to here. I brought you out of a house of slavery. It was nowhere you wanted to be. And I redeemed you and brought you up out of there. And that's what he's done for us. That's what he did for me. I'll speak for myself. I know there's a lot of people out there would say, man, we look back on our life and I'm saying no matter if you were a hard sinner or a soft sinner, I mean, it was really was a life of bondage. And we talked about that, didn't we? I mean, Paul looked back. He's like, I was hateful. I hated people, envious, jealous, bitter, conniving. That's the way we were. We spoke evil to people. And man, and then I look at all the Man, I mean, a lot of bondage I had through, we were talking about it last night, got myself involved in occult things. I didn't know any better, but I'm doing Chinese meditations. I had spirits come on me. I mean, I was severely oppressed. And God granted me a great deliverance out of that. And from sin and occult bondage, you name it. 
I mean, I was not a happy person at that time. My friends, I didn't trust any of them, and we didn't trust each other to where I got people I trust that I know won't do me harm. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, do I weary you now with what I'm asking you to do? Are my commandments really burdensome compared to the life you had? And he says they really aren't. And he goes on to say what to him there in, in Micah? So he says, I delivered you from the house of bondage, the house of servants. And he also says, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He's saying, I didn't just bring you out. You think about it, because there's a lot of people. We got to think about how blessed we really are here at this church. And not because of me. I'm not saying that. But listen, there's a lot of people, they get truly saved. And listen, where they're brought to and the leaders they have and the teaching they get is just limited. And it limits their salvation and hinders them in a lot of ways. I'm saying, that's nothing we're proud about, okay? But personally, I am so thankful for the leadership that we've had. And so he talks about Miriam, Aaron, and Moses. So what I'm getting at is God didn't just bring them out of there and then just say, well, here you are, people. I got you out of that house of bondage. Now find your own way. Figure out how you want to worship me. And think about what he's given us. Man, I mean, I came out of a house of bondage, the church I grew up in. It was terrible. They were not leading me in any way to the way of salvation. When I wanted to be saved as a young man, God's dealing with me on my sins. I went and asked priests, can you help me? I want to be saved. And he literally, this one priest, I liked him. He was a very nice man, and I'm sure sincere. He looked at me. I was at a basketball game. I said, I just want to be saved. And he didn't know what to tell me because in his mind, they'd been trained. I was saved as an infant. I knew I wasn't. So I just wanted help, and I'd go to this one and that one, and they couldn't offer me any help. But God, in his grace and mercy, has given us good leadership. So a lot of people, Dr. Freeman's not the most popular man, I know. But I'm saying, God gave us so much right there, I'm just telling you. Conservative teaching with a charismatic influence, I'm saying, it's the foundation of our church. It really is. And then comes right through Brother Hamilton, and not only him, we have other people, Gary Idy, Mike Guthrie, I'm saying... God has really blessed us, and we should be encouraged to keep pressing on with what we've been given. So, no, no, no. We don't have all the truth. We all know we don't have all the truth. And yes, other people are walking in things we haven't seen. But listen to this. The truth we have, for the most part, there is absolutely nothing wrong with it. And we just need to get back to walking in that. And God will bless us so much. Amen? But he's talking about that Moses and Aaron the high priest, bringing them before God. And we have knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ doing that on our behalf, our high priest. I believe we're going to hear a message about how he prays for us at all times. He's a faithful high priest. Never leaves us alone. And then he talks about Miriam. Well, why did he throw her in there? Well, what was she? She was a prophetess. And what did she write? She wrote songs we sing. I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. Symbolic. And has God not given us great hymns and songs and worship that we can enjoy? And that's what he's telling them. Has he done us wrong in that way? Given us leadership? Brought us to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? And given us music? I mean, our church is not degraded into a lot of this contemporary stuff that to me, I'm just saying, I'd have problems with. And I'm saying, we've got good worship here. And I do appreciate that. So what have I done wrong? I've sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. And he goes on to say in verse 5, he says it again. He's still, he's pleading with his people in a nice way. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, consulted, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. 
answered him is really is where it should stop right there. And you know what he's telling them there? He's saying, look, Balaam and Balak, they would have destroyed you, but I was looking out for you. He's saying, you've got to recognize the protection I gave you along the way. Because that prophet's trying to get him to curse those people, and he says, I can't do it. So we were talking a little bit last night. I'm telling you, if you're walking with the Lord and your heart's right with the Lord, you're not going to pick up some curse that you're not aware of. I'm saying, if you've been involved in the occult, God will show you that. We don't have to walk around worried about somehow somebody's did a curse on us or whatever, okay? God will watch over us, and if we're walking with him, we'll be blessed, and we won't be able to be cursed, that's what he's teaching. But he's also saying, look, I was watching over you all and I protected you. And think of all the times God has protected us. All the testimonies we're hearing week after week. I was driving, this happened, that happened, right? I was working, this could happen. How many scaffolds I fell off of. And it was all while I was saved and God's protected me. I'm standing right here, fine. And God's faithful in that way. And he's bringing that up to him. And then at the end there in verse 5, when he says, from Shittim unto Gilgal... He's telling them to remember two things there. Remember how I kept Balaam and Balak from cursing you, but he's also saying, I was with you from Shittim to Gilgal. Well, Shittim was the last place when they were on the other side of Jordan where they were. And he's saying from there to Gilgal. Well, Gilgal was when they crossed over the Jordan River and started conquering that land. That is where they made their headquarters at. And what was in between all that? What was in between from Shittim to Gilgal? And they're saying they're weary of the Lord. He's boring them. Do you know what was in between that? When they crossed the Jordan River, you know when they crossed the Jordan River? When the Jordan River was swollen. Now, it's not like it is today. It was swollen and rush, a rushing river. They couldn't cross that thing. And you know what happened? Talk about how boring would this be, is what God's saying. The high priest carried that ark, and it went clear up to the point they put their feet in the water. Now, with Moses, they didn't have to do all that, right? He split that water open. They didn't have to act their faith to that degree, but he's stretching them a little further. So the priests have to walk in, you read your account, into the Jordan River. It's not until their feet got in that water. And then once again, boom, miraculously parted for them to go into that promised land. And he's telling them, he's bringing them back to that. And as soon as that last foot hit the other side of the shore, whoom, it all came back. So he's saying, that's boring to you guys? And I brought you in there and you conquered Jericho, marching around that great city and saw the walls fall down flat. It's boring, you guys? He's like, God's presence was with you, brought you in. And I'm saying, to me, that gets me back to when, man, when I first heard this faith message and just simple prayers of faith. Right, And so God has trials, but generally I tell people, you get under the faith message and you just determine I'm going to trust the Lord all the way. He generally early on doesn't make you wait long because he wants to encourage you in your faith. And you'll see answers to prayer. And all of us can look back and say, hey, we saw God's hand just like those waters parted. We saw God's hand and presence with us early on in our walk when we're crossing over. Just came out of being redeemed from Egypt, and we're crossing into the promised land, and God's presence was with us in a miraculous way. And it should be a great encouragement to us. And that's what he's telling him here. So he goes on to say to him there, the end of verse 5, he says, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord, or the righteous acts of God. So what did he do? He's saying he did right by Israel. He was faithful to the covenant that he had made with Abraham. So that started way back when, hundreds of years before, and he brought them through into that promised land. And that's what he's talking about there. So 700 years prior, 
Isn't that funny? He brings them back that far. That generation wasn't living then. But they're living in the results of that. And I think what he's doing and bringing that whole era up, all those things happening during that period of time, I think what he's saying, because they all would have known about it, and I think what he's saying is what he's saying to us. It doesn't have to just be past history. He's bringing up 700 years of past history to these people as his case. Because what's he telling them? He's saying, if I did that for your ancestors back in the day, 700 years ago, this is what I did. He said, I'll do it for you today. That's what he's telling them. So we hear about the past, we're reminded about the past, we read about the past in his Bible, but what we're saying is it doesn't have to stay in the past. Those same righteous acts of God he will do today. And it doesn't matter if anybody believes it. He still will do it. I was talking to somebody about, you know, we need revival here. We really do. Personally, if you're going to wait for everybody else to get on board or we're going to wait until the whole church, we're all motivated to do whatever it is we think we need to do to get things right, it may never happen. And so it's like Gypsy Smith said, the old great revivalist from years back. People were complaining to him about, well, there's no revival taking place. He says, you want revival? He says, get you a piece of chalk and go in the floor of your room and draw a circle in there and stand in the middle of there and say, God, bring revival here. That's what we need to do. You can't wait for everybody else. We got to start it with each one of us personally, and then we all get together and we'll have a good time, right? Amen. But I'd say this. The complaint Israel is having and is that it, it's weary, it's boring, and I'm saying if you're walking in faith and holiness, it is never weary or boring. Never. <laughs> it's not. So we move on to verses 6 and 7 here. And here's the worshiper. Here's the response. They're, what they're, how they're responding to the Lord. Look what he says in verses 6 and 7. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord? How am I going to enter God's presence? He's saying, look, I agree with everything you're saying. I need to get back right with God. Things are not right. And so what is it that I'm supposed to do then? What is it that God wants? That's what he's asking. Where shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God, the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? And so what's he saying here? He's asking what is his price, isn't he, in essence? You know, I had a guy one time I worked for years back. Some people know him. He was a fat cat, and he's laying there, I'm painting, and he's laying in the middle of his living room, literally flipping up coins in the air. And he's saying, yeah, he's asking me about our church and all this. He's interested in the church. He says, well, your pastor's got a price. I said, what do you mean by that? He goes, oh, every minister's got a price. He can be bought. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I don't believe my minister has a price. And I said, because if I thought he did, I said, I'd leave. And I don't think he did. He lost a lot of friends by not having a price. And that's the way it is with the Lord. There's not a price. We're not going to buy righteousness from the Lord. We're not going to buy him off. But here's the worshiper saying, what's God's price? There has to be a price. And he starts off small, doesn't he? Burn offerings. He's like, well, maybe he wants that. And the price keeps going up. Burn offering, I'm not going to get any of that. I bring that burn offering, the whole thing's consumed. Is that what he wants? And then he moves on to a calf a year old. Well, that cost me some money. Got a nice-looking calf here that would, you know, and I got all this investment. That's worth some money. It's worth more than that burnt offering. Is, is that what he wants? And then he moves on to what? So he says, 
burnt offering, a calf a year old, with the thousands of rams. So if it's not the quality, maybe it's the quantity. Maybe a thousand rams will do better than these calves, plural, that are a year old. And then he goes on to rivers of oil. Now, oil, that was a lot that was brought in sacrifice. All these things are things that were brought to sacrifice before the Lord. Or she says, finally, shall I give up my firstborn in the transgression? All of those were done in sacrifice in the Old Testament. Even to firstborn kids, those wicked kings. Started with Ahaz, followed on in to Manasseh. And he's like, David and Solomon, they brought thousands of goats and rams. Is that what it is you want, Lord? Is that what it is that will make me right with you? Is that what God wants? Even to my firstborn child for my transgression, if it takes that, I'll do it. That's what he's asking him. But what's the one thing? What is the one thing this worshiper has left out that he's willing to bring? What has he left out? His heart. And that's really what God wants from all of us, isn't it? He wants our heart. Because the thing is, when God has your heart, he has you. And he has me, doesn't he? You know, the old story went that when Ivan the Terrible and all his soldiers, they said, well, we'll be Christians. And when they went down to get baptized, you know what they did? They held their arm up and the sword out of the water. You know why? Because God wasn't going to get that. He had everything else but that. But they weren't going to give up their violent ways. So did he really have all of them? I'd say not. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. You think Jesus cared about his money? He didn't care about his money. What is it he wanted? He wanted his heart, didn't he? He's saying, that's what's got your heart. So you need to give it away. He didn't care about his money. But you need to give that away and then come follow me. So I have your heart. He wasn't willing to do that. That's what that test was all about. So eternal life is God having our heart, only our heart. And so Proverbs 23, 26 says, My son, give me your heart and let thine eyes observe my ways. Proverbs 23, 26. That's a great verse. My son, give me your heart. And so what's the other thing? When he has your heart, what else is God going to have? What follows that? And someone has your heart. Obedience. That's what it is. So if you would, put something there in Micah and turn back to Jeremiah 7, please. Beginning in verse 21. Jeremiah 7, 21. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, put your burnt offerings under your sacrifices and eat flesh. For I spake not unto your fathers, nor commanded them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifices. He's saying, look, the first thing that I put on your fathers, I didn't ask them to do all these sacrifices like that's what I wanted because he's going on to tell them, here's the first thing I wanted, verse 23, we sing it. But this is what I commanded them, saying, obey my voice and I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you. And then what happens? That it may be well with you. But, verse 24, they hearkened not, nor inclined their ear, but walked in the counsel and in the imaginations of their evil heart, and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came forth out of the land of Egypt, unto this day I have even sent unto you all my servants the prophets daily, rising up early and sending them. And yet they hearkened not unto me, nor inclined their ear, but hardened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. 
Therefore thou shalt speak all these words unto them, but they will not hearken unto thee. Thou shalt also call unto them, but they will not answer thee. But thou shalt say unto them, This is a nation that obeys not the voice of the Lord their God, nor receives correction. And as a result of that, what does he say? Terrible words. Truth is perished and is cut off from their mouth. And that's what God wants from us, isn't it? It's nothing for us to hang our heads about. God wants our heart, and then he just wants our obedience. He just wants us to walk in his law and obey him. And we can do that through how? Through the power of his Holy Spirit. He says he'll write those laws now through the new birth and the Holy Spirit that we have. And also he'll give us the power to live that life. So we're not a lawless people. And we know the law is no longer a means of righteousness, of attaining righteousness, right? But we're not a lawless people. So when God has your heart, he has your obedience. You know, he's no longer the coach of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, but that Greg Schiano, when he was, this is the way he tried to operate that football team. He had this motto called TBA, and T stood for trust the system, B was believe in me, and A was be accountable for yourself. And here's the problem that he ended up having is, at some point, those players quit believing in him, quit believing in Shiano, and they didn't think he had their best interests in hearts. Didn't think they were, he was treating them like men. And so guess what happens? When you lose a person's heart, you lose them, and then you lose their obedience because he'd lost that team, and it fell apart. What we're saying is God wants our hearts, and when he has our hearts, he'll have our obedience. But unlike a football coach, he's saying he's worthy to have our hearts, isn't he? He really is. And not just our sacrifices. That's his whole point in what he's saying there in Jeremiah 7. So sacrifices weren't wrong, but they have to be done in the right motive and with the right heart. Then they're great. That's the way they were ordained to worship. I'm sure God's hand was in them. There was probably an anointing on them when they were doing things in, with the right motive and offering those sacrifices. That was not a boring process for them. But it would have been, and it was. That's what we read. It was wearying them, boring them when their hearts weren't right. So 1 Samuel 15, when Saul was being confronted by Samuel, what did Samuel say to him? He said, is the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. And David in Psalm 51, he says, man, Lord, I know just more sacrifices isn't what you want from me. That's not what's going to make things right. And he says, for you do not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, he said, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So, now, David's not saying God didn't want sacrifices. That was part of what he needed to do. But he's saying he means sacrifices that weren't from a right heart. He's saying he wants that broken and contrite heart first. And that's what he wants from us. And then our sacrifice of praise, our lives, exercise and faith, it'll all work. It'll all work for us. So then he goes on. We're down to verse 8. If you go back to Micah, he lets them know, I want an obedient and loving heart. And then he gives requirements. But let me quickly add, this is not the requirements of salvation. He's not saying if you want to be saved, this is what you have to do. He's saying if you are a saved person and a covenant person, this is how I expect you to live. So you give him your heart. That's your salvation. 
Doing these three things isn't what's going to get you saved. It's, it's not a works he's laying out here, but this is how saved people should live. And he narrows it down to three simple things. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. And that's the exact same thing that Jesus told the Pharisees in Matthew 23. Didn't he? Say, man, you guys are so picky about all these little things you're doing, thinking I'm pleased with that. And he said, you've omitted, you've left out really what counts the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and yet Jesus says faith. He doesn't say walk humbly with your God, and I don't think there's any difference between the two. But look what he says there at the beginning of verse 8. He says, he has showed thee, O man, what is good, and God requires it. So the thing is, it's not that God requires it and it is good. No, he's saying it is good. And that's why God requires it. That's why he requires us to live a certain way. When he made the creation in Genesis chapter 1, what did he say? He beholds everything he had made, and he said, behold, it is good. And what's he looking at? He's looking at Adam made in his image with holy inclinations to do what was right. Adam was a holy being and walking in holiness until he sinned. That's the way God made him, made in the image of God, holy and obedient. And sometimes I don't know that we see holiness that way. It seems more like a burden to us. But I always like this 2 Chronicles 20. It said, Jehoshaphat, when he appointed the singers, he had them praise the Lord for the beauty of his holiness. And there really is a beauty there. And we'll all see that one day when we see the Lord, that there is a beauty of holiness. And I think you see that in people now, saints that are walking in holiness. There is a glow, a beautiness about their lives. Now let me ask you this, so if you knew a man, you knew a man that never lusted after women, he never lied, he would never steal from you, he's a totally trustworthy person, was patient, was meek when he was done wrong, and you knew he was a man of prayer, and had all the attributes we read about. Say back to the Apostle Paul after his conversion, you would say that man is a truly beautiful man. He is a good man, wouldn't you? I would. And that's what we're talking about here. That's what a holy person is. And so God says, I have shown the old man what is good, how to be a good man. And he says, in fact, it's not just that. I require this of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And so justice means what? It just means to do what is right, to do what is right according to God's word. And so how do we know what is right? How do we know what the right thing is to do before the Lord? Well, you could say the whole Bible, and I wouldn't argue with that, right? But I think at that time, I mean, when they're writing, they didn't have the New Testament. To, so when they're referring to doing what is right, and especially here in Micah, they're talking about the Old Testament and the law. And there is nothing wrong with reading the law to get principles in how we should live. That is not putting yourself back under the law. If you're doing that to say, well, if I do these things, I'll be right with God. Well, we're not talking about that. But it's guidelines and principles and how to live. Because Paul said this, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So we know we're saved and justified purely by what Jesus did on the cross alone. But that doesn't mean there's no profit from reading books like Leviticus because we're going to do it right now. And we'll see how it's profitable. So if you would, put something there and turn back to Leviticus 19. We're just going to look at this one chapter. But I want to look at several verses here. 
to see the practicality of the Old Testament showing us how to live a righteous life, to do what is just and right. We could read the whole thing, but I just want to look at certain verses. So look like in verse 9, Leviticus 19.9, he says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of the field, neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. What's he saying there? He's saying don't take everything that you harvest for yourself. You leave some for the poor. And how would that principle then, since most of us aren't harvesting fields necessarily, what's the principle for that? Don't take everything you earn and just have it for yourself. You should leave some for the poor to help other people out. That's the principle there. Look at verse 11. You talk about practical. He says, you shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall neither lie one to another. That's justice. Look down in verse 13. You shall not defraud thy neighbor, neither rob him. The wages of him that is hired shall not abide with thee all night until the morning. Once again, another principle. You have people working for you. You don't hold their wages. You pay them when you need to pay them. And don't leave them hanging. They have families or whatever. So there again, you can learn something from that. Down in verse 15. You shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the persons of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness you shall judge thy neighbor. Thou shalt not go up and down as a talebearer among the people. Well, that's pretty practical. And that's justice. (laughs) That's a tough one to put in, isn't it? Into practice. Neither shalt thou stand against the blood of thy neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17, thou shalt not hate thy brother in thine heart. That's justice. That's the way we should live. Thou shalt in any wise rebuke thy neighbor and not suffer sin upon him. Wow, there's something else there. He's saying you see somebody in sin, you shouldn't just allow their sin to stay on them. If you love them, you'll say something to them. That's what that verse is saying. Verse 18, you shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Wow, that's in the Old Testament. That's not just New Testament. Look down at verse 26. He says what? You shall not eat anything with blood. And that's in the New Testament too, isn't it? Neither shall you use enchantment nor observe times. Verse 28. You shall not make any cuttings in your flesh for the dead, nor print any marks upon you. Wow. Well, that's practical. But you're saying, oh, that's legalism. That's just the law. I don't think so. I don't think God intended us to be walking billboards for whoever. Well, let me say, so people, you get a tattoo before you come to the Lord or before you know what the Bible says about any of that stuff? Do you got to sit there and live in condemnation over that? No, obviously, that can be forgiven. But I don't know, I don't know how many tattoos I'd be getting after I read verse 28 of Leviticus 19 because I think that's a pretty clear prohibition there. And look on verse 31, he says, Regard not them that have familiar spirits, neither seek after wizards to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. He's twice talked about occult practices that should be avoided. And and in the chapter down in verses 36 and 37, he says, Just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and just hens shall you have. I am the Lord your God, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall you observe all my statutes and all my judgments and do them for I am the Lord. So doesn't it seem there there's a lot of practical things? That's what justice is. And you could find a lot of things and principles in more detail than you will in the New Testament about how you should live ethically in this world. We just looked at several of them, and there's several more that we could look at. A just balance. And we talked about that 
way back about you should charge people the same. You don't rip people off just because you can. And we have those kind of decisions all the time, don't we? And how we're going to live justly with people. You know, you're in a house, you're a construction worker, somebody's got a brand new floor down, and you drop a hammer and dents their brand new floor. But there's all kinds of guys walking around with hammers. And here comes the temptation. You're thinking, man, I don't have that kind of money that I can sit here and pay to get this guy's floor repaired or whatever. That's going to eat into my profits, you start thinking. And how would they know it was me? There's hammers flying all over the place, right? All kinds of stuff going on. And what do you have to do? Because that's when to be a just person before God, you got to suck it up. No matter what it is, that's a small thing to me. The other times there's bigger things. And you have to go tell the person, look, I'm sorry. I just ruined your floor with my hammer. And I'll take care of it, whatever it means, right? That's the way we should conduct our business if we have a business. So it costs you money, so what? It's not to get away with it. You want to walk justly before your God. It's a requirement. The old thing about, and it still applies, and you can apply it to other areas, but selling your car. You know, just because this guy's going to buy it, but you know there's about three things he doesn't know about till he and he will a month from now. You tell him everything that's wrong with that thing. Why? Because we just read it in Leviticus 19. You want to do unto others as they do unto you. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if I was going to buy a car, I'd really appreciate it if that guy told me everything that was wrong with it before I plunked my money down. Right? And that's part of walking justly. And we could go on and on and on. And so Paul sums it up in Romans 13. I believe Paul Hamilton read it last week, and we'll hear it again. He says, Oh, no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this. Summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you get in any situation, just think, what would I want to have done to me? How would I want to be treated? No matter what it is. And that'll tell you. That's the guiding principle. It's all summed up in that. Because it says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore Love is the fulfillment of the law, Romans 13, 8 to 10. And so he goes on, if you go back to Micah, he goes on in Micah 6. The second thing he says there, you shall do justly, and he says to love mercy. Now, he doesn't just say to do mercy, like he said to do justly, but he said to love mercy. And Romans 12, 8 says, he that shows mercy is supposed to do it with cheerfulness. So you're supposed to love it and be glad about the fact that you get to do it. Because if you look over in 718 in Micah, he says this, Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever because this is the God we serve. What does it say about him at the end of verse 18? It says he delights in mercy. And that's why he says we should love mercy. We should be like our father. He delights in being able to show mercy. Psalm 18 says, With the merciful, God will show himself merciful. And Matthew 5 said, Blessed are the merciful, because they shall obtain mercy. And don't we all like to receive mercy from the Lord? Because we need it all the time. Right? So mercy is what? It's just kindness and concern. This is different than justice. It's kindness and concern for somebody that's in need. And the idea of mercy is, here's somebody in need that needs help. And you're somebody that is able to give them that help. That's what mercy is. You have the ability to meet that need. So justice 
is doing what is right and mercy is helping somebody that's in need. And they may not really technically deserve your help. There might be somebody that has made some bad decisions, right? And I go into a prison with a whole prison full of people that have made some bad decisions, and I'm saying those guys need mercy big time. But no more than I did. I really needed mercy in my life. And that's what that parable, isn't it, that Jesus told about that man that was forgiven a great, tremendous, unpayable amount. And he's saying, man, when that's happened and you know that, you can't turn around and choke somebody that owes you basically next to nothing because they somehow offended you. When we've offended God, we can't count the ways we've offended him. And so we should go out and show mercy to other people. Because you think about the man, the good Samaritan, the guy that sat on that road, the one that got attacked by thieves, he didn't use a whole lot of good judgment. I mean, they knew that that road, it was a known fact. There was robbers all over there and people that would attack you and hurt you. And here's the guy going on that thing by himself. That wasn't too smart. And the Levite and the priest probably both thought that about him. But the Samaritan didn't. That's somebody that's a born-again person with a heart to help others. And it says when he came where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And that is mercy. And the story goes, it'd be like me handing somebody my visa card and saying, whatever you put up on that thing, it's no problem. Just take care of him. That's what he did. Just gave him an open checkbook. John 3 says this, For we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever has this world's goods and see his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. And I will say, though, this church has been a very generous church to help people in need. And I believe God, that may be one reason why we're still here because people have been merciful to others that have needed help. So Micah 8 ends up with this, ends up saying, and to walk humbly with thy God. And that is how a Christian walks. Like I said earlier, Jesus gives the same requirements. Instead of saying walk humbly with their God, Jesus says that it should be faith. And I'm saying when you walk a humble walk, it will be a walk of faith because that's what faith does to you. It puts you in humility, dependent totally on God when you're walking by faith, right? And Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. And I like the way Peter says it in 1 Peter 5. He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. When we trust God and him alone for any promise, it is humbling. You know why? Because that means it's going to take a miracle in a sense. It's going to be God answering that prayer, right? However he does it. And so we have to throw out all of our natural reasonings on how we could get things to work out. It's Proverbs 3. Trust in the Lord with all of thine heart, and we lean not to our own understanding. We've got to give that up. That's a humbling thing to do. And all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. That's why he's saying walk humbly with thy God, because when you walk by faith, there's a lot of times you feel like an idiot, and the world will make sure you feel like an idiot. They'll treat you like one. 
And so when you're walking by faith, which means you're going to be true to the Lord and that off-color joke comes and you don't laugh at it, you feel out of place. When you're with a group of sinners, you do. Because they're giving you this look like, who do you think you are? You didn't think that was funny? And so it's, it's a humbling experience. It really is. Or they hear the jokes about, well, all these children and don't you know what to do about that and all that. That can be humbling. Honestly, it is. Works a little humility in you because we're trusting God that he knows what's best for us. And that he says, children are a blessing from him. And we don't have to be embarrassed. But the world, they'll try to make you feel like an idiot. They'll try to put you in your place and humble you. Or you won't watch certain movies or TV shows. And that may even be with people in here. Somebody says, I can't watch that. Well, you might feel out of place because everybody else is. And that's the popular thing. But we're back to walking humbly with our God in holiness. I've been through this a bunch, trusting God to supply my needs. And it's like, you know, you didn't get out of grade school because you don't know all the financial angles. I heard it from a certain person all of my life. All the financial angles. I know. I know the financial angles. I really do. But the Bible doesn't have those financial angles, and I'm committed to that. Okay. <laughs> How would you feel about that big? But praise God. He blesses you, doesn't he? It's, to me, it's worth it. And you see him provide your needs and just do things for you, and you see him answer prayers, let him have all the financial angles. Because guess what? You take all the financial angles and you miss out on seeing your heavenly father provide your needs, knowing that he did it, and walking with him, and knowing that he answers your prayers. Because anybody can do financial angles or whatever you want to call them, right? You aren't going to do that dance to that cool song that everybody else is doing. And... <laughs> I've been through that one, too, not that long ago. My wife and I, were out on the Sea of Galilee at midnight on New Year's. And they got this boogie music playing, and everybody, you know, even... But me and Lisa, we're like, you know, you just feel totally out of place. Hey, what's wrong with you? Come on, you guys. And it's like, nope, you got Amazing Grace in there, you know. <laughs> can, you, can you play that one? <laughs> but anyways... And on and on we could go, right? You know, I always liked the Brother Hamilton did that where you're coughing and they could see you're obviously sick and why don't you do something about it? Went through that on our trip too. My wife's obviously sick. Well, I mean, man, the fact that you're not going to take some medicine about that. We weren't the popular couple, I'll put it that way. But God was faithful and God is through that. Anyway, so the point is to walk humbly with God. If we're going to trust him and, and trust him and walk in all of his ways, it will be a humbling experience, won't it? And we got two Old Testament saints you could give many that walk that way. Noah, for instance. Listen to what it says about Noah. Noah in Genesis 6, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man. We talked about walked justly. And it says this in Genesis, and perfect in his generations. And it goes on to say that Noah walked with God. He was a man that walked with God, perfect and just in his generation. And I'm going to tell you, and our generation is compared to Noah's day, is it not? And he lived in a violent, sex-crazed world. And you think that wasn't humbling for him to walk through that generation? It had to be. It says this, that he was a preacher of righteousness. He preached right living to a group in the world that didn't live right at all. It said all of the thoughts of their hearts were wicked continually. And here's Noah standing out like more than like a sore thumb, right? And the other thing is, here he is, not only that, but he's like building this thing that everybody can see. And what's that for? We know the story, right? This big box to put all the animals in for this rain that nobody has seen. 
No wonder that he is put in a class with three other men. In Ezekiel 14, God singled him out. Noah, Job, and Daniel. Those three men. They said, just those three men, if they lived in the state of Israel, they could only save themselves, not even their family at that point, because of why, if you read it. In Ezekiel 14, he says it twice, because of their righteousness. And that's what we're talking about. That's what will deliver us. And I'll tell you, here's what I want to say to us. What are we talking about? Where do we need to get back to as a church? I'm saying we've got to get back to where we are a praying people, seeking the Lord. We want to see God move. It's not going to just happen. And we have got to get back to where we're seeking the Lord, fasting, praying. We've got great needs in this church. And so however we do that, and I think Noah was a fasting, praying man because all godly men are. And I would suggest, really I would, but when you read biographies of great men and women of God, they were all people that fasted and prayed and made God their priority. And you don't know about him if you don't read him. You read about any revival that takes place, it's all preceded by prayer, and generally prayer and fasting. And sometimes it's just a couple people that got desperate and said, hey, this situation is no good. There's no life around me. And they get together and pray. And God would bring other people in. But I think that's what Noah, Noah was a man of prayer. And we didn't get into it Sunday, but it, the first thing he says, and we heard it in that Jim Symbol video, those people that watched it, the first sign of conversion. So Ananias is a little afraid of Paul. Man, I know all about this guy, Lord. He's destroying your church. And the Lord says, but wait a minute, Ananias. He's praying. We said he never prayed before. Not like that. And that's the first sign of the new birth. And we have got to get back to that. We've got to get back to being a praying people that seek God and put him first. And I was talking to a brother the other day, and he was saying, we've just got too many distractions, and we do. We've got too many distractions in this generation. So we're all going to have to figure that out for ourselves. But I think he'd have been a praying man, a gentle and meek man, and one that would speak the truth. And I believe he was a nonviolent man. Because it says that the earth was filled with violence several times. And I don't think Noah was that way. And I don't think Jesus was that way. And I don't think Paul was that way. And I don't think he was a man that was ashamed of his God. He was meek, but I don't think he was weak. And I think he was faithful to his wife. And that's what it means to walk humbly with your God. And another example in the Old Testament amongst many that we could pick was Abraham. Genesis 17 says, when Abraham was 99 years old, an old man, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be thou perfect. 99 years old, he appears to him. I am the almighty God. Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Trusting him, it's a humbling thing. That he may exalt you in due time. And that's what Abraham at 99 years old was willing to do. He changes his name from Abram to Abraham. I'm willing to be laughed at, Lord. I'm willing to walk humbly with you to see your will done in my life. And I'm saying to walk by faith, it's a humiliating process. We got other stories we could tell from the Bible that pride's got to go. You tell me that is not one big mind battle you have when you're trusting the Lord is what are people going to think? What is going to happen to me? If somehow this doesn't work out, that's how the devil comes at you. 
And it's a humbling process. Your pride has got to go out the door to walk with the Lord. But Abraham was willing to do that, willing to be called the father of a multitude when Sarah had no children, and he's an old man. That's something. And that's what it means to humbly walk with God. So the question then, are God's requirements too much? Are they really burdensome? There are three. He's boiled it down to three basic things. To do justly, to be a just, righteous person. To love mercy, to love to help people. And that's, we're into prayer with that too. I think that's the number one way we minister to people. And when we're not, we can do everything else. We need to be praying for each other, praying for the different needs, praying in the Spirit and trusting and praying in faith in the Spirit and tongues. You just do it, but pray in faith. And God will work wonders through that. To love mercy, to show mercy, to love it, walk humbly with your God. That's, what it, that's all he's asking. Let me close with this verse. Deuteronomy 10, 12 says this. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. So unlike that football coach, God's asking us to walk with him in a humble way and to keep his commandments, and it's for our good. Amen? And let's just determine we'll do that as a church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we thank you that you've made it clear, so clear what you require of us, Lord, and it's nothing that's beyond us and our ability outside of your grace, that you will give us your grace and your spirit. And you'll help us to walk with you humbly, Lord. And if we'll just draw nigh to you, you will draw nigh to us. And, Father, I'd ask that for all of us in here, Lord, you'll all make us people of prayer, people that seek you throughout the day. We're looking to you in all ways, Lord, to guide our steps, to do what's right, to meditate on your word, to pray for others when we have opportunity. And you'll show us the way we can go according to your word. And I thank you that you'll do that for all of us here and bless our church in that way. And we thank you for meeting with us tonight. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.